let's stand and we'll read Second Kings uh, chapter three. We'll start in verse nine. Uh, basically, it's about King Moab is rebelling against after Ahab, King Ahab dies, and Moab was like a vassal state as Edom was to Judah. And so the king of Moab rebels against uh, his son, Jehoram. And so Jehoram goes to Jehoshaphat, just like his dad did, and says, hey, let's go bring this guy back into the fold. And, and, you know, so get your troops and let's go. And Jehoshaphat does it. So that's kind of where we're at here in verse 9. So very similar, if you remember, to what Ahab did in asking Jehoshaphat to go and help him in war. So verse 9 says, So the king of Israel went out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here, though through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the kings of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elijah said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father, to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them to the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. Now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord was upon him, and he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry bed, dry string bed full of pools. Now, uh, if you have the KJB, or I think just about every other translation, it says that the Lord told them to dig pools in the riverbeds. Uh, the KJP or the ESV, for whatever reason, sees this as uh, the, 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 them doing it on their own. But either way, uh, and verse 16, And I will make dry steam beds full of pools. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind or rain, but the steam bed shall be filled with water stream bed, excuse me, shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you and your livestock and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree and stop all springs of water, and ruin every good piece of land with stones. And if you're a farmer, you know that there's nothing worse than having to pick stones out of the field. So basically just ruin the land, just make it inhabitable. The next morning, about the time of the offering of the sacrifice, behold, the water came from the direction of Edom, till the country was filled with water. Then all the Moabites heard that the kings had come to fight up against them, and they were, and who were able to put on armor, from the youngest to the oldest, were called out, and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning, the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, mow up to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites, so they fled before them. And they fought, and they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities, and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. 
They stopped every spring of water and built all the good, felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kirpareseth, and the slingers surrounded and attacked it. Then the king of Moab saw the battle was going against him. He took with them 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. So uh, a kind of routine story that turns rather grim at the end. Uh, but it is interesting to me, it's kind of interesting, because it's, not, it's a story that I think there's things to learn, and we're going to talk about it, but it's a story that I, it's hard for me to know precisely why the Lord added this and all the things he could have put in here, why this. But he did, and so we'll uh, do the best we can with it. Last week, though, we finished right there where um, with the, the Elisha had called the she-bears out to kill, uh, ended up killing 42 uh, young men, teenagers, no doubt, at least, no better than teenagers, maybe younger. Because they disrespected him. And we, we started to make the application that it wasn't so much in the disrespecting Elisha, but in disrespecting the prophet of God, the one who speaks the word of God, you are taking out, you're really taking it out upon the Lord. And so there's a parallel here in the way that you would respect the elders of the church, the pastor, and, and the church itself. And I, and I started to talk about that. That not because certainly I or even Jeff deserve special respect more than anybody else because we're sinners like everybody else. But because of the office we do, there should be a measure of respect for that. Because you understand that, uh, the office that I have, the, the, that I am here to explain the word of God to you. And so there's a measure of respect for the Lord, for the word of God, that will carry over into the office of the elder or the teacher in that sense. And that's not to be taken lightly. I know I say, well, you're tuning your own horn. You take it any way you want to. But uh, it, it, in other words, the point here is that it's a reflection of how you fear or how you uh uh, respect the Lord. And and so not just in, in me personally or Jeff personally, but even in the church services, how often you attend, how regular you are in attendance, how you listen, as well as how you read your Bible any other time and so forth. It all speaks to what the Lord means to you. And so we, we would, I think, be remiss if we did not just point that out, that uh, there's, you know, there's something going on here. And so People get, you know, read this and they, they think, well, boy, the Lord is very mean here. But again, what is he, what's the problem here is that they are, they, they have been taught by their parents to slight God and slight his word. Remember, there's in northern Israel here. And, uh, the Lord does not allow that to go. Even to the point that he would let their children be slaughtered by bears. Uh, so in other words, this is why I, I say all this because if the Lord sees this is important, and, 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 and how you honor him and his word, then we need to stop and to think about our own relationship with God and his word and those who deliver it and so forth. Now, you know, I, I don't like, 
I mean, there, there, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but you know, the, there are some pastors uh, who are very solemn uh, when they're around the congregation. They're very, uh, you know, reserved. I don't. You know, that's fine. I'm not criticizing them. I tend not to be like that. I, I try to be, you know, who I am, and uh, to uh, have a good relationship with with you as best I can, and not to act differently. Because of who I am, although I understand, of course, as a Christian, as a pastor, I have certain responsibilities and so forth that try to act appropriately. But I think, you know, maybe perhaps some people, some pastors do that because they uh, expect to be treated a little bit differently. And, and I don't know, you know, that's, that's neither here nor there, I guess. But, uh, you know, just because... I try to have a normal relationship with people uh, in, in the congregation. Don't take that as, as you know, to, to be lax, not, again, not to me, but towards what I'm doing, when, especially when I get up behind the pulpit, because these are important things. And then also, when you think about this, this mob of, of young men, children really, who, who do this, uh, perhaps another important lesson here is that raising our children to be children, or saying that our boys will be boys, is to is telling them it's okay to be lax towards the things of God, and be careful here that you raise your children and not just your boys but your girls to to uh, to to take their place as adults and to be mature and even as kids, uh, you know, especially by the time you reach teenage. Uh, there's no reason for the, for a teenager, a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, to be out of control. They they are to, by that time they have been taught to 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 think. Remember, in a lot of uh, uh, cultures, 12-year-old is when they a, a child is is considered to be uh, reached manhood, adulthood, um, and teach them to 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 think and to. Uh, control themselves and to understand what is important and what is not important. Doesn't mean you can't have a good time. But, uh, this idea that, uh, kids just allow to do whatever they want to do and kids rule the house and all this kind of garbage will come back to haunt not just you but them. And we see, I think, this here. And the Lord allows Elisha to call down a gory judgment upon these boys. For this, and, and so you can't just ignore that. It kind of tells us one thing that the Lord isn't out there trying to save everybody any way possible. Like the Armenian would tell us, that God wants to save everybody equally, he wants to save everybody, and that's all that matters. Well, if that mattered, he wouldn't have uh, had those kids uh, killed at that age. He would have given them the opportunity, right? But the Bible over and over again shows that that is not the right way to look at this. It doesn't mean that God doesn't command all men everywhere to repent. But that people being saved is not the top priority with the Lord. His elect being saved is. And again, you can't read verses like this and verses where Israel's told to go into a city and not evangelize it, but to destroy it. You've got to, your theology has got to be able to do something with that. The Lord is sovereign. The Lord is God. He will be obeyed. He will be honored. That's why he created us. And that the, the essence of sin is that we 
give honor to something other than God, to the creature. That's why we're all going to hell unless we are saved, right? So, you know, you've got to see the the complete picture, the the one story, the one narrative of Scripture. And I think these these uh, this narrative like this shows it very well that there's what the Lord sees as important. And so, one commentator said that the Bible never condemns a man for being bald, but the Bible does, however, condemn mockers and rebellious teenagers, casting insults on their elders, and again, not just your church elders, but those who are older and who have who deserve a certain amount of respect, is a good way to bring condemnation on your head. I'm glad that as we live under the new covenant, it's not our duty to call down condemnation on, on people like that. It is our duty primarily to be a witness and to call them to come to Christ. And so we're glad for that. But it doesn't mean that sometimes we do pray that the Lord will remove people who are doing damage to his name, doing damage to the church. But uh, anyway, this is what we, we read here. And also, again, kind of going along with that, we're reading this in a uh, New Covenant context. Uh, by the way, just by way of last week, I got to do the review here. We saw Elijah, Elisha showing someone committed to the Lord and will not be deterred by the other saints. Remember the other prophets trying to get him to go and do some things uh, to kind of get off script and worry about things that weren't important. We also saw that when the Lord takes a servant home, he had to know take his place. And this is, you know, all through scripture, of course. The school of prophets seem to be more excited about the miracles and experiences and heeding the word of God. You, you saw a certain amount of immaturity with the way they were handling everything. And then, of course, as, as we got into it, I meant to do this, kind of lead into what we just said. Respect for the church and leadership and preaching indicate your respect for the Lord. And so, again, um, as we read uh, this account in light of the Old Covenant, we think about Leviticus 26, starting in verse 21. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. So, this is what they're doing. This is what the kids are doing. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you a few in number so that your roads will be deserted. So, the Lord's only doing what they have agreed to when he sent those bears out. Then, uh, in verse 28, I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And, of course, that was done through as, as enemies would come and besiege their cities and their towns. So, uh, the Lord takes worship obedience, honor, and so forth seriously when it comes to who he is. Well, and of course, all this is showing where sin takes all of us, where we're all headed. It's a lesson in sin and the need of a Savior. And this is why Jesus had to come, because this is all of us, um, apart from the Holy Spirit working in us. And so let's just let's beware of just passing all this off as Elisha being full of himself when he called down these judgment upon these kids. And perhaps it applies to how we view, as I said, um, uh, you know, talked about your, your view of the church leadership. And so with this in mind, 
we have we have the answer to how we lead the church. So when we, in obedience to the Lord, feel like we have to bring discipline upon somebody or we have to confront somebody or whatever we have to do, I know, I know myself, and I know I think I could like say I know Jeff well enough to know that that's the last thing I want to do is have to confront people. I've had to do it through the years. Don't want to do it. So if we do it, you can be sure we feel like we have no uh, no other recourse. And the point is that honor that to be thankful for to be thankful that somebody doesn't just you know doesn't care. Because you can go to a lot of churches around here and they will never once say anything negative towards you. They just want to be encouraging. Okay, love Christianity. They want to be encouraging. And never confronts and never uh, try to get you to think about uh, these things. Um, but uh, I can't be like that. So if we honor the office and, and what we're doing in the Lord, of course, that, that I think helps us. All right, well, let's kind of get into this week's here in chapter 3. I've entitled this, We Four Kings, because there's really four kings, right, that are involved here. Um, and the first thing we might want to clarify is that we meet Jer- Jehoram, the son of Ahab. Now, this might be confusing. First of all, remember, uh, the, uh, his first son died in uh, chapter uh, 1 when Ahaziah fell through the lattice and he died. So now Jehoram is this next in line son. And if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 17, it says he he died. This is Azariah, the, the son of Ahab, died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. And Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And if you don't, you know, if you're not paying attention, you might not notice it, but if you if you read this, you're thinking, there's two Jehorams. Because it was a popular name. So, Jehoram was the son, one of the sons of Ahab, and also the name of one of Jehoshaphat's son. And so, you know, that's what's going on there. Just so you, if you read this, you're thinking, well, what in the world's going on here? And Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, reigned for a while, both of him and his father reigned at the same time, which is why he's listed in that verse. So, just so you, you know, in case you're wondering about that, which I won't ask questions, I won't ask you to raise your hand if you're wondering about that, but just in case. So anyway, we're given a sense of the spiritual condition of King Jehoram, which is evil, and in, in this case, unlike his father and his brother, he was evil, but not, the Bible makes it very clear, not as bad as his brother and father, who were who pushed their worship, Jehoram evidently probably just pushed the false worship of Yahweh that um, Jeroboam had started. Remember when they when the kingdom split? It was still idolatry. It was still wrong. The Lord had no use for it. Obviously, He condemned it. But He makes it very clear here. We didn't read it, but. It, it says that he, verse 2, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, it's not rosy, it sounds good, but it ends up not being all that good. He clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, which he made Israel to sin, did not depart from it. So he kept the 
false worship of Yahweh. Uh, and he got rid of the Baal. But, so we see here that the Lord doesn't accept that. But the Lord does make a difference. He was evil, but not as evil. And that, of course, uh, coincides with what we read in the New Testament, where we see that Jesus many times says it's worse for somebody who did this than for the person who didn't, and so forth. There's different degrees of punishment. And I guess we shouldn't be too surprised about that, because we know that in heaven, in the eternal state, there's rewards. And uh, we don't know what that looks like, but clearly uh, there's a, a the Lord is perfectly just, and He knows how to reward those who are more faithful, perhaps, than someone who is not, and in all the in between. So we kind of see that there. Now, wrong is wrong. <laughs> And uh, we we are not to read something like this and say, well, you know, I'm 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 not as good as this guy, but I'm better than that guy. Because look, that's that's how the Bible presents Jehoram. Well, we know again we have more light than they had, and we know that the Lord doesn't accept any sin, uh, but He understands, of course, that we are as dust, that we're sinners, and. He's gracious to us, but we don't make excuses for our sin and say, well, you know, I'm not as bad as him. So we start comparing ourselves to everybody but Christ. But once we compare ourselves to Christ, we know that we deserve no good thing, and that no good thing dwells in us. And uh, it is our duty to be as good as we can be. And by good, I mean to serve the Lord as best we can, and not to make excuses for it. So, I was reading about a preacher who was preaching on total depravity in a church in Baltimore. And after the message, <coughs> after the message, a woman came up to him and said that that sermon made her feel this big and she held her uh, finger up and, and made, you know, just a little space like that. And the preacher says, well, I messed up somewhere because if you feel good about yourself at all, you've missed the point, right? And, uh, you know, so, that's right. That, that's, and apparently she had missed something. We, apart from the work of Christ, we can do no good thing. <clears throat> but God sees differences in the way that we live, and He will hold us accountable to that. And uh, we understand, so, uh, we don't have an excuse for sin, yet I'm, I'm thankful that God is a gracious God who, um, doesn't condemn every time we sin uh, bring the judgment and we deserve it upon it. That's because Christ has taken our judgment for us. <clears throat> but also what's interesting about this chapter is that we've almost read the exact same thing, right, in the last chapter of First Kings, where Jeho- Jehoshaphat goes up with Ahab into battle and he's looking for a, a prophet from Yahweh to have some idea what's going on. And that's what happens here, you know. He, he, he's a compromiser, right? We've seen this over and over again with him. He thinks he can hang around God-haters and it's not going to affect him. We, 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 if you, I think we read it in Second Chronicles 19, first three verses, where after he gets back from almost getting killed in battle with Ahab, the prophet comes up and says, what, what are you doing going into battle with these people who, who despise God? And you think he'd learn his lesson, but here he's, does the same thing a few years later. 
So he's a believer, but he thinks that because he has some of his life in order, he can uh, compromise with those who hate the Lord. He, he, he's not being careful. He's not mortifying. As we talked about, you know, Friday you know, in Romans 8 there, he wasn't careful to mortify the flesh. Now, of course, he was Old Testament. He didn't understand maybe some of those things. But as we look at this, we can see the problem. He's not looking to weed out every part of his uh, of his life that dishonors the Lord. He's just, he's got no problem getting involved with these lost people in uh, things that uh, he had no business doing. So he, God is gracious, so he's living in the shadows. And, uh, so, uh, but twice now, compromise has dishonored him. Dishonored the Lord and has dishonored Jehoshaphat. Compromise is basically letting someone else rather than the Lord determine what you're going to do in any given situation. Now, again, I'm not saying that compromise is to be around lost people. We're not to avoid lost people. But, you know, Jehoshaphat is not visiting the king of northern Israel trying to impress on him his need to get right with God. He's involved with them in, I say, the business of being a king. And things that um, he is, that the Lord obviously is not happy about. He's fellowship with him. And he's putting God's people at risk to help an idolater. And twice the Lord tells him, this is wrong. And so we notice this pattern of him making decisions, getting involved, and, you know, if, if there's an all of a sudden kind of waking up and saying, I better check and see what the Lord has to say about this. And, of course, that's the point here. As Christians, we don't just start going out there, you know, like a bull in a china shop in life and just doing it. And all of a sudden thinking, boy, it's a mess. I need to find out what God has to say about this. We are to know God's word well enough so that we don't get ourselves a message like that. We, it, it guides us. It's a line into our path. And he's, he's got the cart before the horse. He's, he's letting, uh, he's going along in life, uh, using other sources for his guidance other than the word, or at least before the word. So he's got it kind of turned around, because everything we we do should be run through the filter of the word first. It should be, you know, I think, pretty basic Christianity to us. And so in verse 11, he's looking for a prophet, and Elisha's around, so they call him. But God nor his people are here just to help people when they have a problem and Elisha just like Elijah before him uh, was not in any real hurry to help these wicked people the wicked king uh, because they're idolaters and they're just using the Lord in this case they're doing it because almost because they have to but they've done it before we saw with Elijah uh, it was a common thing they would talk to the true prophets and, and then just reject what they said anyway and so Elisha has got no big desire to be used. Uh, you know, well, he's got himself in trouble or in the fix. Now he wants help from God. And Elisha doesn't want to be part of it. He says, if it wasn't for the fact that Jehoshaphat was here, I wouldn't even come and talk to you. So it's kind of interesting there, I think. <clears throat> but remember, this is the old covenant. These, these, God had already turned his back on northern tribes in a sense. They, they, they've already been, their days were numbered. 
It's certainly not telling us that, well, if you're not a Christian, we don't really want to have anything to do with you. That's We, we can't put ourselves in, in the place of Elisha here. Um, but we can tell the lost that you cannot use the Lord like that. You cannot go about your merry way in, in your idolatry, your, your lostness, and your sin, and now you're in trouble, and you come to me asking, well, you know, pray for me. Or ask, you know, what is God, you know, looking for God when you, when all you want is help, you go right back to rebellion. So we are here to, t- to call upon them to repent. So you want God's help. Don't pray because you're lost in your sins. You need to pray the sinner's prayer. You need to repent of your sin, turn to the Lord, and now you can receive His grace and mercy and help. But right now, only the wrath of God is upon you. So, as Christians, don't get caught in this trap of playing along with these people who have no use for the Lord except when they're in trouble. Because that the Lord despises that. You know, we're seeing that here. No, it takes guts. You know, in biblical terms, it takes faith. It, it, it's saying, you know, I'm willing to offend this person to tell them the truth. Rather than just play nice, like again, like the pastor down the street who, you know, some lost person comes to him and they, they'll treat them like they're, they're saved. And, and talk about the promises of God, but the promises of God don't apply to lost people. Unless they repent, right? And then, verse 13, all of a sudden Jehoram's a theologian. He has decided that, well, the Lord, because we, we come down here and we're not sure if they just kind of charged towards Moab without thinking and they got, got themselves in the wilderness and didn't have the water they needed or perhaps uh, they thought they were gonna, there was going to be water where they went and there wasn't, but not, they come to a dry place and they know they're in trouble. And so he's decided the Lord is against them and they're going to be defeated by Moab because he you know, he's just, he's a skeptic. He just, he just, I mean, he doesn't know what God wants. So he blames God. It's just typical. Someone said, always beware of folks who cite the sovereignty of God in order to excuse or accuse, but not worship and adore. Think about that. Beware of people who cite the sovereignty of God but only in order to accuse him or, or excuse them. Yeah. They don't talk about the sovereignty of God as a reason for me to adore the Lord. They, they, they use it as, well, you know, God's sovereign, can't do anything about it. Everything's planned. I can do the matter. I'm not responsible. Or, or God's sovereign, you know, and he should have done that, you know, and that, that doesn't seem right, you know. So that, that's, that's kind of what, you know, Jehoram does. That's what the lost people do. That's what a lot of Christians do. We still call Christians. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, they, they don't look at it as favorable. It's a good thing. They, they don't like it. They don't, they don't like God being God. And the, the news media is full of people talking about where, where was God and what was he doing when this catastrophe happened. So they don't mind talking about God and judging God. But the, you don't find them any other time in church trying to learn about God. 
but when something happens they don't like, now all of a sudden they're experts on God, right? They 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 feel like they can judge him. We got to be, you know. I I I I'm not surprised that a lost person does that. But when you hear Christians do that, well, then we want we don't want to be guilty of that. We want to be careful that. Excuse me. Our view of God, our relationship with the Lord, doesn't is it fickle based on how things are going? Because that's what murmuring is, complaining. It is well, Lord, I, I'm I'm okay with you usually, but right now I'm not. Well, who are you only? What God is doing? You're to figure out what you need to be doing. So you can't use the word for the moment and not submit to it long term. It's not for emergencies. It's for normal days. It's for all the time. Someone else said that some use God as the airbag of in the disasters, you know, so that uh, you, know, you don't. You hope you never have to see it. You, you know, it's it's never good when an airbag goes off, right? And some people use God like that. You know, I don't want to even think about that airbag unless, you know, you have an accident. And that's not honoring the Lord as it should be. <coughs> so off they go, and they basically annihilate uh, the Moab army. God, uh, in it, for whatever reason, says, I want you to just completely ruin this land. He was, I guess he was pretty upset with Moab, but it was time to do something about it. I don't know. But the, the the story ends on a interesting, if not difficult, note that here uh, the king of Moab he's an he's an idolater, right? He doesn't know God. So uh, when his uh, god Moloch fails, he doesn't know why. So what does he do? He he does what worshippers do. They offer their children a sacrifice. So he. he Offers his next in line, his oldest son, uh, as a, an offering to Moloch to hopefully appease him and, and help him win the battle. Of course, it didn't work. So it's a it's a horrible account because of what's going on. But the maybe more difficult thing is that it ends that um, wrath came upon Israel. And they all left from fighting, kind of, they, they had pretty much won anyway, and they kind of, instead of finishing the job and killing the king, perhaps, or whatever, they just turned around, and at this sight of him killing his son, they leave. And that's brought up, you know, a few problems from the commentators as to, you know, why would you do that? And there's probably four or five different reasons that have been put forth. I think one that makes the most sense, but... Um, First of all, uh, since the word for wrath usually refers to God's wrath, then uh, maybe he is upset for Israel for destroying the land, some upset. And I think that's can be discounted because there's no indication that God told you know God told him to do it. So I don't you know, that wouldn't make any sense. Um Another, the liberals say, um, I think I skipped one. Oh yeah. Um, 
secondly, the liberals say that, well, that the wrath here is not the not Yahweh's wrath, but uh, Shemosh, or you know, Mahler, his, his wrath, the God of the Moabites. Well, you know, I don't think we need to have to go there because uh, he doesn't exist. He has no wrath. So that, I would expect a liberal to say that because they don't believe in, in God to start with or, or that Yahweh is any more of a God than anyone else. So that's typical of liberalism. Thirdly, some say, well, the wrath is of the Moabites. So they were so moved at what their king did that it caused them to kind of have a second wind and they ended up fighting against Israel and running them off. Well, that takes a lot of speculation that, that, that uh, the Lord allowed that to happen. If this small decimated army was able to turn these, these three other armies away, uh, it is, and there's no indication that it happened at all. So that, I, I, I have a hard time with that one as well. Finally, though, well, there's there's another one here. I think that some people kind of look at it that the the sight from everybody looking on of what the king did here was so awful that they that they blamed Israel for driving Moab to do that. And so their, their their wrath was upon Israel, and Israel said, oops, sorry, and they kind of left. And everybody was mad at them. I think some of the commentators seem to kind of take that approach. And, and I, I have a hard time with that one, too. But first of all, I don't think this was not that, that this was not abnormal. This is what happened. People got decimated. Cities got destroyed. Uh, Nothing was going on here that, wasn't, that wasn't, didn't always happen back then. So the people were horrified that the king did what the what worshippers of Moloch did. You know, I don't think that, that just doesn't make any sense either. So I think the, the final view that, that probably is what's going on here is the view that this is Israel's wrath. The word against, because it says the wrath was against Israel, and in our in our English minds we would say, well, that's somebody being mad at Israel. But the word can mean upon. So that wrath came upon Israel. Um, so the idea then is that when Israel saw this inhuman thing that this king did to his own son, it so horrified them that they, they just left. And, and that would seem to be probably what's happening here. They were basically had already been victorious, and so they walked away. So anyway, those are some of the things that people have tried to, to uh, try to explain this. And so you can do it then as you want to. But there are some contrasts in this chapter, right, as we finish. Four kings, but only one does things differently than the other three, because we're, we're saying that Edom uh, and the king of Edom, along with the uh, other two, but we have one that is godly, and then four, three that are not. Uh, there's also a contrast though between the three and the Moabite king, because you know he he's despicable, and each to the point where even the other kings just you know had just turned around and left him. His his paganism caused him to be so barbaric because he hopes his God will help him. And what a contrast between false religion and the true religion that. That our God doesn't expect us to be barbaric towards our children to appease them. What kind of God wants that? Our God wants you to love your enemy.
Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, God doesn't sometimes bring justice upon people, sending armies out to kill, but <clears throat> our Lord is, is a God of love, a God who, who wants people to do what is right, and wants what is good for people. False religions don't. Those who don't know the true God live in desperation and will do desperate things. And, and so, I think, again, think about it. If, if you're lost, you don't know what's going on. You don't know why things are happening. And so, you, you see people doing desperate things because they don't know God. They don't know truth. You think about someone who commits suicide. You know, because, well, you know, things just aren't going their way. They, 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 they're desperate, but if they know God and they understand you know, why things happen, what's going on, and have peace with God, none of them want to commit suicide. <clears throat> so it's just a con- contrast to the way people think. <clears throat> All false gods are products of man's depraved heart, so it's no surprise that this guy does this because this is kind of God he worships. <clears throat> Hopefully we can see the difference. It's, it's good to know and to have Yahweh. He comes to our aid based on grace as we humble ourselves before him. He doesn't find pleasure in hurting us, but he will and demands that we honor and worship him as he should. <clears throat> so we don't have to bash our heads against the wall or that of our sons or children because things to a saint never become that desperate. Now, I'm, I'm speaking here as far as what is truth. I know that sometimes in the heat of the moment, we can become very desperate. You know, something happens and we're running around. I don't know what to do. What's going on here? But once we get past the emotion and settle down and start thinking about what God has revealed to us, we know that we don't have to be desperate because we have all things in Christ, right? We have a bright future. And so... Ultimately, though, as we see this poor son's blood being spilt, and it, in a sense, saving his father, saving the, the people, we can make a little bit of a stretch and say, well, we know that at one point, a son's blood was spilt that did turn away the wrath of God. I was reading about a story of a missionary who, um, he was, uh, a missionary convert who had asked the missionary uh, for some medicine. His child had been by a river and got bit by a poisonous adder and was in desperate straits. And he came to the missionary doctor and got medicine to save his life. And the doctor said, well, let me ask you this. Why didn't you pour sheep's blood on your son? Because that's what you would have done before he got saved. Why didn't you do that? And he said, well, because now I know that the only blood that saves is Jesus' blood. That sheep's blood's not going to do any good. He, he knew that only God could save his son. And so, <clears throat> that's, you know, so it, it kind of, maybe there's a little parallel here in, in this son's blood being shed in a horrible way. It reminds us, though, that someday it was going to happen in Christ and it was going to be done for our salvation. Well, we're, we're, I guess we have, I was going to take us to Deuteronomy 4, and we're going to, I want to, maybe I'll do that next week, just as you read those verses, and God is telling Israel what he expects them to be a light to the nations. 
you start reading it, you begin to see how Israel wasn't doing a very good job of what they had been commissioned to do. And you see that in our account, but maybe we'll use that to uh, kind of uh, review next week. Any questions or comments? Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this day and for the Word of God. Again, we pray that it would uh, be used in our life to make us more like Christ, to build us up in the faith. Lord, as we, we read these accounts, we realize that we've got to take this thing seriously, that uh, there's a reason why this is here. What it says about you should uh, not only make us fear judgment, but run to Christ, to be so thankful that you have brought us to Christ, that we can uh, escape the rapid is to come. And so we give you all the praise and glory for our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.